Well, hello and welcome to the latest episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, the podcast where we take a look at the biggest stories happening across the global sports industry, particularly through the lens of deal making and finance. I'm your co-host, Eric Fisher, U.S. Editor for Sport Business. And as always, I'm joined by Chris Russo from Fifth Generation Sports. How are we doing this week, Chris? Doing well, Eric. How are you doing? Well, good. It's just as... uh, you know, the pace, uh, you know, we were talking before the the velocity and the uh, deal activity, is, you know, we keep saying every week it's been a busy week and they, they seem to only get busier, which is a good thing. This is a further signs of recovery across the entire industry, more activity happening, more deals happening. And we've got a lot to unpack this week, a couple of more big media and data deals. And then a uh, big step in New York State as it relates to uh, in-person gate attendance. But we're going to start off with a conversation conversation with uh, Patrick Keene. He's a chief executive and an early uh, stage investor with the Action Network. This is a betting information service uh, based here in the uh, the United States. It recently just did a big deal with a company called Better Collective out of Denmark. So we're going to have a conversation with him. Stay tuned for that. And then Chris and I will be back to unpack the news of the week on the other side. Stay tuned. Very pleased to have on Sport Business Finance Weekly is our guest this week, Patrick Keene, Chief Executive and an original Siege Stage investor in American-based sports betting product and media company, The Action Network. The company, which in its nearly four years of existence has become a key source of content, insights, and analytics for bettors, has just completed a major deal in which it will be acquired by Danish sports betting media group Better Collective in an agreement valued at $240 million. Prior to becoming Action Network CEO in 2018, Keen held senior roles with Associated Content, CBS Interactive, and Google, and previously held board positions with Bleacher Report, now owned by Turner Sports, and the Interactive Advertising Bureau, among other organizations. And he is also currently an operating partner with growth equity fund Stripes. Patrick, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So let's start with your own sort of background and journey. As I just mentioned here, you've been a lot of different places and, and a lot of big companies here. And what originally attracted you to this sort of startup opportunity? Well, for me, I think one of the most attractive things was, and it falls in line with the thesis of the churning group, which is platforms, consumer platforms that have passionate audiences and multiple revenue streams. So for me, I've spent many decades in advertising. And while advertising is starting to see brighter days since the pandemic is starting to ease somewhat, but I really did want to enter a business opportunity that was not reliant at all on advertising. And Action Network for us, our business is subscription and it's affiliate revenue driven through sports books. So having a multi-legged stool of revenue that was non-advertising to me was super compelling. I do think there still is opportunity in the world of advertising, but I really like this ability to have passionate audiences that are willing to pay for content and that we can contribute and distribute into sports books. Patrick, there are other sports betting content destinations out there, but you know the Action Network has really achieved uh, some great success here. What's made it different than some of the other properties out there? Is it the, the, the analysts? Is it the content? Is it the relationships you've had in the industry? What has differentiated you and allowed you to get to this point? Well, I think one of the first is Chad Millman. So Chad, who runs content for us and was really one of the anchors that built the original business when it was sort of a couple of kids in a dream. And he left a few decades of success at ESPN and came and really built a really sustaining and growing organization. 
And I think also we've been smart with respect to content to invest in a couple of different manners. One, we, we invest in people that I would say are sort of bring an audience and are marquee names and folks, people like Jason Sobel in the golf world on ESPN, Darren Ravel, who spent many years at ESPN and, and, and at, at CNBC. They come with large footprints on their social platforms and embedded consumers that care about what they do. And then secondly, Chad has really built what I would say is one of the great farm systems for sports betting content and analysts. So he's really created a, a team of folks that have risen through the ranks and are, have become, you know, I won't say household names, but definitely in the world of sports betting, very prominent names. And I think that combination of investing in net new and emergent talent plus existing talent, I think has really worked well for us. So we're, of course, still kind of in the early days in the maturation of the U.S. sports betting market. So you probably did have and were going to have plenty of options in terms of potential acquisition partners. So getting specifically then to the betting collective deal, why them and why now? Well, we we did feel pretty confident in our ability to continue to grow and maintain our success that we've seen so far. The business was profitable starting in September. We've been profitable since then. Which is, which is a good thing. Your investors like to see that. We had plenty of cash in the bank. But around the end of the year, I received a fair amount of inbound interest in buying the company. And that's the kind of thing you at least listen to. When that, when that din gets a little louder, you listen a little more closely. And when it became five and six and more different companies of all sizes, private equity, sports books, strategics, et cetera, we, we thought, hey, what, what, maybe we'll go work with a partner to help us navigate this. Chris has done these deals before and, and to hear executives say when something becomes distracting, you have to take it seriously. And it became distracting. So we brought in Molas to help us with a bit of a, what I won't call a process, but fielding inbounds and helping us evaluate some of the opportunities. And that's what brought us to Better Collective. Patrick, what is your role going to be going forward? Not just so much in your title, but what are you going to be focused on day to day in this next chapter? Well, I really like how the Better Collective team being a public company signed up for a pretty ambitious number in 2022. They've told their their investors and the investment community in uh, the Swedish stock exchange, where they are, the Swedish NASDAQ, that they will do 100 million in revenue in the US in 2022. And Action Network will be a, lo- a very large portion of that. So revenue is going to be an important driver of our success. It always has been. But for us, we're going to continue to have to partner with Better Collective, us plus Better Collective will equal, I think, more favorable and better terms with sports books. We bring a certain heft that we didn't as singular entities on our own. And now in combination, we're going to be able to go to our existing sports book partners and create deeper partnerships and drive more revenue. So for me, it's definitely being part of a public company, which I've done before in a couple of different places. Now I'm back to it. And you have real responsibilities when you're a public company and, and revenue is the number one item that people are focused on. How would you describe the cultural fit between Action Network and the Better Collective and how important was that in this evaluation process versus other potential suitors? It certainly was. I mean, we're, we're definitely getting to know them better. But one of the, the things that was most important to me, and I mentioned we talked to sports books as potential acquirers, the, the challenge of, of a sports book acquiring us would mean we'd be sort of a single entity affiliate platform. And the great thing about Better Collective is it allows us to be and continue to be an independent affiliate conversion platform. We can still work with all the books we've worked with before. Uh, We're not gated in any way in that fashion. We don't have to rely on just promoting a certain book's odds or content. So that to me is really important. And I've known Jesper and Mark, uh, two of the executives from 
Better Collective for since 2018. They came to visit me in our office in New York and and proposed a different series of partnerships. And we ended up seeing them more as frankly a competitor than a partner at the time. And we kind of went in our separate ways. They've watched us closely and realized that we've become a much more formidable character in the in the category. So they came to us. But you know, they're a Danish company and they have assets and and partners all over the globe. And thus far in working with them, it's been a delight. And they've told us pretty emphatically, and we'll see if that changes. I've been through some acquisitions in my life that we're going to operate independently and that we are going to execute the same plan that we've had in place absent the acquisition anyway. Patrick, you talked a little bit about your revenue aspirations in the U.S., maybe more broadly from an industry overall. How big is this opportunity to serve operators for affiliates and media companies that are looking to drive signups and and sort of drive new customers for these betting companies? How how big is that market? It's a good question. I mean, the the numbers fluctuate here and there. I mean, we really focus on the 13 states where online betting is available, where we can really drive conversion. If you're in a state where online betting is available, you can still subscribe to our products and use our services. But this is in the tens of billions of dollars. And it's one of those rare, total addressable markets that is large as is, but is is confirmatively growing. You know, we'll see what happens with California and New York and Florida and Texas. Those are big states that we're all hoping to come online. But every day you see new, exciting news of a certain state that's moving more quickly than we had presumed. States like Arizona and Maryland. And we'll see what happens with some of the other larger ones. But for us, how we truly grow is when we see deeper penetration and more states becoming fully mobile. You mentioned before the ability to work with a variety of different sports books, but beyond sports betting writ large, how much of this uh, new structure of Better Collective will get into iGaming and other forms of, of gaming overall? We'll see. I mean, they certainly have a large business with traditional casino and iGaming in their markets in, the, in, the, in Western Europe and other parts of Europe. We have ambitions to look at it potentially. We'll see over time. I mean, you know, as a startup, you were sort of have to focus on the things that you know and the things that you can do well. So we were pretty singularly focused on the sports betting opportunity and the conversion opportunity there. But we'll continue to invest in fantasy sports, which is a big part of our platform. And one of theirs with their Roto acquisition that they did a few years ago, I can see deep hooks of integration there. But at the same time, we will experiment and we'll look at opportunity because those categories in iGaming Casino have even higher conversion affiliate opportunities than, than betting but we want to make sure that we're focused on what we do best, which is entertaining, engaging, and providing tools to sports bettors of all levels of sophistication. You talked about the Chernin Group. I know you have some other high-profile investors for Tita Capital, I believe, and, and some others. What role did those investors play in getting, to you, getting you to this point? And will they be continuing on with the company in some form or fashion as, as investors? Well, they'll continue on as friends. You know, they're going to get uh, cashed out, which I think they're quite happy with. But the churning group, that they're, they're incredible operators. I'm friends with the partners there. will continue to be the case. I'll continue to, you know, continue to, to work with them to some degree in the future, I'm sure. When you mention uh, the Fertitas, they've been great investors as well, have tremendous casino operational experience. Plus, I was always happy to have four of the major bat and ball sports in the U.S. as investors in the business with David Blitzer from the Sixers and Devils and uh, Stephen Ross, owner of the Dolphins, and then the Cubs family office. So uh, they've been very helpful. It gives us legitimacy and credibility and always had to sort of have teams and owners on the cap table. 
and ones that were helpful whenever I needed them. But they're going to be very happy to see a, a tremendous return here. And hopefully I'll never have to pay for a seat at Wrigley or in Miami or in Philadelphia or New Jersey. But we'll see. We'll see if they'll, they'll honor that. To what degree will you work with Better Collective in opening up other new markets in other parts of the world? We don't really have any plans there yet. I mean, I'd rather focus again on North America and North America is a big place and we're starting to see interesting news for Canada. So I could see us investing more in the Canadian opportunity. I mean, almost 10% of our audience is in Canada. So I, I see that as a bigger opportunity than maybe appealing to to net new markets in Europe or Asia or other places. But our coverage will still cover those categories too. I mean, when I look at the emergent areas of coverage for us, and they're not the major sports in the US, but they're becoming important increasingly are golf and UFC and Champions League, Serie A, et cetera, international soccer. We're starting to see a ton more interest and enthusiasm in our platform, you know, picks tracked increasing hundreds of percents year on year in in soccer as one example. And UFC has been a real pleasant surprise in terms of conversion for us. Every big fight is 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 just gets bigger and bigger for a convergent and convergence and audience for us. Patrick, there's been a flurry of deals involving sports and media and affiliates over the last year, maybe starting a, a year ago with Barstool and now extending into VEASAN sold last month, you guys being sold now. Do you expect more M&A to be happening over the next 12 to 24 months in uh, and around media and affiliates in, in, in that area? I do, absolutely. Although, you know, there aren't many chairs left when you think of uh, who's being acquired. But when you look at all these sports books, you know, their biggest costs most often are marketing. If you look at DraftKings or FanDuel, these folks are spending seven, $800 million a year in acquiring customers. So the Penn National Barstool template is one that makes sense if you're trying to find a more cost-effective acquisition funnel through content and through your own owned and operated properties. So I could see more and more operators doing deals. The thing that I'm continually surprised by is the lack of urgency and investment from major media companies. I've always thought that you know my old shop at CBS or ESPN or any of the other large diversified media companies would, in, would, would invest more. I think they've all taken various approaches to this, creating so shows if you're ESPN or, or doing other things in the category that, that might make sense for you. But the thing about a lot of these media companies, and we've been lucky, is they sort of consider sports betting a hobby. And, and it's what we do all day, every day. And I think part of it is that online betting wasn't available in as many states as it has been. So it was sort of a, an opportunity that wasn't large enough. And also the big media companies, and you could put Bleacher Report in here on the, on the Warner Media side, they like the business of getting, you know, nine and, and more figure checks from the sports books to be official sponsors or official partners. So they'll continue to go that route. But I have been surprised they haven't invested more in their own native platforms from content or doing it through acquisition. Well, it's just been an incredible rocket ride to see what the Action Network has done really in just about three and a half years here. And we're going to obviously pay very close attention to what you're doing under this new relationship with Better Collective. And we want to thank uh, Patrick Keen from Action for spending this time with us. Happy to do it. Good to talk to you. We are back on Sport Business Finance Weekly, and we again thank Patrick Keene from the Action Network for spending that time with us here and uh, taking a look at some of the news of the week here. 
we've had a, a run of really big media deals in the space here. And uh, this past week sort of got off to a bang with uh, something we've been kind of expecting for a while where Verizon, a big uh, US-based telecom company, they're sort of after a rather expensive experiment over $10 billion in the digital media space, they're sort of tapping out and sort of focusing on their uh, their core mobile 5G and uh internet communications businesses, they are selling their Verizon media holdings, uh, which are principally uh, led by Yahoo and AOL, and they're selling them to Apollo Capital Management. This is a hedge fund uh, co-founded and led in part by Josh Harris, who listeners of this program may know as uh, one of the lead investors for the Philadelphia 76ers of the NBA and the New Jersey Devils of the NHL, among other sports assets. So Apollo is going to be taking over Yahoo, including Yahoo Sports and AOL, and they're going to try to make a go of it here. But after uh, about six or seven years here of, uh, you know, really trying to make a, a go in this space and, and challenge Facebook and Google for supremacy in the digital advertising market, uh, Verizon had to come to a very painful and expensive conclusion that it just wasn't going to happen, that regardless of the quality of these relative sites, that the the scale that Google and Facebook enjoy is just orders of magnitude larger. Yes. And if, if you look through this from a sports lens, obviously Yahoo Sports is an important player yep. in the ecosystem. Verizon was an important player in the ecosystem in part because some of the rights that they had acquired over the years from the NFL. I think now in this new Apollo world, uh, I think sports could be increasingly important, not only because of, of you mentioned Josh's involvement and in, in the, in the heritage of sports, yep. but also I think they're really looking at the focus on betting and commerce and, and things related to monetization of sports, which could be a, a very important part of the path going forward. Now, what I don't know is whether... Yahoo Sports will be a rights buyer in the future. I know that in the past they have telecast some games. They have bought some rights from a video streaming perspective. We'll see what uh, the Apollo involvement means for that. But I do think sports will be a big focus for them, and that could be good news for the people that are that are there. Yeah, it's a real big question, particularly as it relates to uh, Yahoo Sports, because obviously, as you know from your prior days with Fantasy Sports Ventures, Yahoo is uh, you know they've been a very big player in the American uh, sports digital media space for a long time. Uh, big fantasy business, and they in, in before this Apollo deal came down, they were really kind of sitting at the center of a lot of different kind of emerging trends in the business, whether it be 5G technology or live streaming or betting content, as you allude to, and that even though they weren't a rights buyer in the sense that a, you know, the big network like ESPN or NBC or what any of the others are, they were sort of still a, a, at some of the leading edge and if not bleeding edge of some of these emerging uh, trends. And so this new structure, they're, they're going to be one to watch because within the sports realm, even though you know, the prior comments, uh, you know, Verizon media overall wasn't necessarily up to challenging a you know, huge monolith like Google or Facebook, but within the sports realm, Yahoo Sports had, you know, from a scale perspective, it had done very well for itself. Yeah. Yahoo Sports, as, as you mentioned, Eric, was a very strong player in sports and in the fantasy space, especially that leads into opportunities for betting. Uh, I believe they have a partnership with uh, with BetMGM yep. was their kind of primary partnership. So the question for me going forward is, 
you know, will Apollo look at this and try to be even more entrepreneurial in the way they look at betting and maybe do more of that on their own? Are they going to look at other partnerships down the road? What kinds of strategic deals can be cut? Apollo has background in owning casinos and experience in the gaming space. So I think there could be some real creativity in terms of where Yahoo Sports goes, especially with respect to betting. Absolutely. And that's, and that's again, going to be something to watch from their side of the table as well. Because if you look at other sectors of American media, particularly newspapers, television stations, some of these others, you know, hedge fund comes in and it, it's often bad news where, you know, uh, staffing is cut, expenses are, are slashed to the bone here. And it's sort of a, a winnowing down to something far less of what that entity used to be. But if Apollo can come in and actually build, change, morph, adapt, try to do some new things, it could get real interesting here. And then it actually perhaps could be a sign of hope for other media entities that are also coming in and take and get taken over by hedge funds and private equity, that this isn't just necessarily bad news. Sometimes there is a need for change. Sometimes media companies can get bureaucratic and financial buyers or owners can streamline things in a way that actually helps. Also, I think for a number of the classic sort of sports online properties, they need to evolve to take advantage of the fact that you know, younger viewers are, are having younger viewers and users have different habits. They're spending time in social platforms. They're spending all their time on their iPhones. And so the, the kind of formula that worked for Yahoo Sports for, for many years needs to adapt as, as do a lot of the more traditional properties and maybe with the, uh, the backing and capital and support of, of Apollo, they'll be able to do that. So going forward, as they look to complete this deal and, and, and Apollo takes over here, what kind of challenges do you think they sort of immediately face both short-term and long-term? Well, I think, you know, we've talked a few times in the podcast about this issue of, of rights. Again, whether they want to go and, and own streaming rights or not, I don't know. But the, the companies, the media companies that have television as well as streaming have an advantage because they could buy those bundled packages or leverage what they're doing in one medium and, and driving it to another. Obviously, Yahoo doesn't have that, that advantage. The other point, which I, I mentioned to some degree uh, just previously, is that when you talk about the next generation of fans, many of those fans are spending their time on social platforms, not necessarily going to traditional websites, traditional mobile apps and destinations. They're spending their time with you know, TikTok or, or other destinations. And how do you make your uh, environment entertaining enough and relevant enough to get that next generation is a challenge. Yeah, it, it's a challenge on one sense, but uh, also perhaps an opportunity on the other that, yes, they don't have any ties or rights relationships. But by the same token, Yahoo Sports is encumbered by nothing right now. They have no contractual ties. They have no editorial obligations really to anybody. There, It seems to me that as they sort of move into this new ownership structure, there's a, a lot of freedom and runway to go in whatever direction they want to go and whatever Apollo wants to fund. But it seems like, yes, there's a glass half empty component of this, but also a glass potentially half full where there's a lot of freedom to go in whatever direction they end up choosing. And, and in the past, Yahoo has done a good job, but they haven't necessarily used that freedom to take a distinctive editorial point of view or a controversial editorial point of view, depending upon your, your view of it, right. the way, let's say, a Barstool or a Deadspin or, even an or, or some of these 
Right, that are that are a little bit edgier and that have a distinctive point of view, and maybe that's another consideration for for Apollo is is the editorial voice of Yahoo Sports. Does it become a little bit more distinctive? Uh, is there more personality injected because that might be a good uh, a good differentiator long term? Yeah, so uh, real something uh, something interesting here to watch, and and again, it's um, you know from that ownership standpoint, uh, you know, again we mentioned Josh Harris before. It's going to also be very interesting to see how sort of directly he gets involved. There's obviously, you know, they're a big firm and there's a lot of other particular individuals involved, but how much Josh himself becomes a part of this also going to be very interesting. Absolutely. So shifting to uh, from the media world and the digital media space to data, we've been mentioning for some weeks uh, the run of activity that Genius Sports has uh, been on here. And as we're taping this particular episode on May 6th, they have struck again here. And in, and just uh, in the last uh, month plus here, we, we've talked at length about their big National Football League global data rights deal. Early this week, uh, they announced a deal to acquire FanHub Media, a deal which I believe you were involved with uh, personally, but now they've struck again here just a few days later, and they're they're taking on uh, Second Spectrum. This is another data outfit that was backed in part by Steve Ballmer, who of course owns the NBA's Los Angeles Clippers and is working on a new arena out that way, and and formerly ran Microsoft with uh, with Bill Gates and others. So now Second Spectrum is going to be part of Genius. And oh, by the way, during this whole time period in the last month or so that we talked about, they've also gone public. They finished their uh, their SPAC merger and they're now public company. So they've really kind of become a force to be reckoned with in, in very short order here. But looking specifically at Second, Second Spectrum, given all the other assets that uh, Genius already has, where do you sort of see the, the rationale, particularly for this deal valued at $200 million? It, it's really about, in my view, uh, vertical integration. Genius is primarily a distributor of data and content and other products. And Second Spectrum is primarily a tracking and data collection business. So now Genius can put the pieces together of the distribution and the collection. Again, there are a lot of creative products that uh, Second Spectrum has developed around this data collection, a number of visualizations and graphics but I, I sense that the hope is you can create some custom data opportunities that might be very relevant for betting that would give Genius an opportunity to license those products to all the operators and, and fully controlling that chain from data collection to visualization to distribution can provide some real advantages. So Second Spectrum, they've they've got a pretty impressive client roster. They work with the Premier League, Major League Soccer, and then, of course, the NBA. You know, and I mentioned Steve Ballmer before. Uh, Genius has their own uh, extensive set of relationships, which, of course, have now just been bulked up that much further with this new uh, exclusive deal with the NFL. But how important do you see those relationships? And is there a situation here where you sort of put the Genius roster together with the second spectrum roster? And does one plus one equal three here? Yeah, those those relationships that second spectrum has are, are very important. When you think about the sports that they are in, they are in basketball and soccer. Those are the two probably most global sports out there. And as sports betting it becomes a global business and as companies like Genius are really global companies, the focus on those global sports, basketball and soccer, I think is really smart. And that's what, and that's what you know, Second Spectrum kind of stayed in their lane and, and created some success there. And Genius obviously found that attractive. Do you anticipate the 
the competitors of Genius Sports, uh, you know, Sport Radar or any of the others moving more and more to this vertical integration model? Or how do you see that the overall competitive landscape evolving as a, as a result of this second spectrum deal? The world just in general seems to be moving toward vertical integration within the gambling space or the betting space. You know, it's Stats Inc. several years ago had a, had a company called Sportview, which was yep. one of the original uh, camera installations in, in the NBA that collected data. Then Second Spectrum replaced Sportview. Then the NFL went with Zebra. Yep. And then MLB has some other partners. And, and there, there are other groups, uh, international groups that are data collectors. And the, the, the posture of the data distributors up until now had been, well, let's see how the dust shakes out with all these companies that are collecting data and maybe eventually we'll buy them. But right now we don't need to own it. We, you know, they'll, they'll give us the data and we just distribute it. But now it seems with this purchase that it is something that probably the other data distributors are going to have to reconsider if, if, if one of their competitors is taking control of the whole supply chain you might see more of this kind of activity across the board. Well, and this also gets back to sort of a prevailing, couple of prevailing themes we've hit on on a lot of these episodes that A, betting, particularly here in the United States, changes everything, and B, the pandemic has just brought a lot of these trends forward. And you're sort of talking about things that people were sort of thinking about and talking about prior to the pandemic, and now what we've gone through over the last 14 months has just pushed all of that forward in an accelerated fashion. Absolutely. From a deal perspective, we talked about the VEASAN deal a couple of weeks ago, the Vegas Sports and Information Network, the Action Network, which we obviously chatted with Patrick about. Now this genius deal. Again, the the, the amount of deals is just uh, staggering. And my sense is it could really continue because there are more and more companies and operators entering the space. Nobody seems to be deterred by the competitive nature of things. Everyone's looking at the growth and the opportunity and makes it kind of an exciting time to be in the space. Yeah. And some of what you allude to is strictly data and some of which you allude to is content in the betting space. And 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 with the sort of enhanced uh, collection capabilities and analytical capabilities that you refer to, that in turn becomes its own content. Yeah. Yeah. Data is content. Data is the fuel for the system. And uh, it's an important part of, of, of how uh, fans can bet. But now over time, and we had Chris Bevilacqua on several weeks yep. ago with Simple Bet, there are these in-game opportunities for micro betting, and that's all driven by data and, and all kinds of new statistics that people are creating. So it, again, there, there's a lot of innovation going on. I think we're just seeing the beginning of it. Absolutely. Well, shifting from the, the digital space to inside the ballpark, we had uh, this week another really big development in um, New York State, which not only being home to the largest media market in the country, you know, home to uh, a lot of the uh, individual league offices and, you know, and obviously just a real center and, and hub of activity across the entire American uh, sports landscape. Well, New York State Governor Andrew Cuomo rolled out a new provision for seating amid the COVID-19 pandemic, where starting May 19th, for these large outdoor venues like Yankee Stadium, City Field, others around the state, we're going to have a segmented situation where if you are vaccinated, if you've received the vaccine for the virus, you can seat normally, still masked, but you can seat normally without any sort of uh, distancing or restrictions. The same sort of socially distanced pods uh, will remain in place for unvaccinated fans. But there's a real encouragement now to have more people in the United States get vaccinated. And the Yankees and the Mets in particular are trying to back that up with not only the ability to sit normally, 
without the distancing requirement, but also free tickets and the ability to get a shot on site at the stadium as you're coming to the game for those that are still unvaccinated. So it really sort of changes the landscape, particularly in New York, rather quickly where they had been due to go to 33% capacity. And now theoretically, the number is 100. And, and other leagues such as the NFL were already making strides and plans to be at full capacity come this fall. But now starting here in mid-May coming up, we're already going to be heading on a regular basis towards that number. It's a, it's a pretty big and dramatic step and one that particularly tries to have a health, a direct public health component to it. I love the idea of giving people free tickets for getting vaccinated at the ballpark. I think that's a tremendous idea. You know, we're only in day two of that announcement, but I think it could be a very big game changer in many markets to get people who are on the fence about getting vaccinated to to go get the shot and obviously be able to sit in the ballpark next to their friends and obviously drives up the capacity of these stadiums in this world. And, and, and really, I think, could take off if, if adopted by a lot of other sports teams across the country, across baseball, basketball, hockey, MLS, uh, NASCAR. I mean, there, there, there's a lot of opportunity here to really drive that. Yeah. And sports could be a key player in, in, in helping with this. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and the way that New York is rolling this out, it, it's particularly interesting where, to be fair, there are several other teams uh, and just in baseball, the Dodgers, the Giants among them, that were already offering some limited sections of fully vaccinated seating where there were some smaller sections of their respective ballparks sectioned off where you could seat sit normally among a group of other vaccinated people. But what the New York plan does is it tries to ramp this up to a much bigger scale. We're theoretically contemplating the entire run of the ballparks here, but also it sort of comes with a not so much as a mandate, but a a sort of direct requirement where New York previously to get into any of these games, you had to either show proof of vaccination or a recent negative test. They're phasing out that requirement, but now sort of moving from the stick to the carrot, where instead of having that uh, requirement at the front end, you can sort of come in and show, and if you can show the proof of your vaccination, you get to enjoy these benefits of the unrestricted seating. So the way it operationally works manifests itself differently. And again, contemplates a much bigger scale than some of these initial trial runs that the Dodgers, Giants, and others have been doing. Uh, yeah, Eric, if I'm reading it correctly, and maybe I, I got it wrong, but aren't they giving, in addition to having those sections, which I think is is interesting, aren't they giving free tickets to people who get that's vaccinated? Exactly, that's exactly exchange? right. So what, they, what the Yankees and the Mets have done is they've signed up, as I said at the outset, that in addition to being able to get your shot on site if you're still unvaccinated, you can also get a free ticket either for that night or if it's, they can't accommodate you for a future night. And so- Again, bracking that up with an even bigger ticket, a bigger carrot to try to encourage that vaccination. And this program is going to also be what the Yankees and the Mets have already signed on to in coordination with the governor's office. This same program will be available to other teams around the state. And it's important to remember that for starting June 1, the Toronto Blue Jays will be back in Buffalo playing their home games for the time being while they're still waiting the reopening of the U.S.-Canada border. So that's a team that could take advantage of this. And there are several minor league teams in the state. You have uh, the Syracuse Mets, you have uh, the Binghamton Rumble Ponies, 
you have others around the state that also theoretically could take advantage of this program, both operationally in terms of allowing the uh, normal seating for vaccinated people, but also if they so choose to coordinate with the governor's office, also roll in this free ticket component. It's, it's really sort of a kind of take the program off the shelf and use it if you want kind of thing. I, I hope more states adopt this. And again, I think it's a way to have a win-win situation where empty seats are now filled with vaccinated people who are getting the benefit of of, of something the club is providing and everybody is, is is doing their best to keep everyone safe. So we'll we'll see how how widely this gets adopted and whether it's a, you know, the indoor arenas are able to, to do this as well or that's still too difficult. But I'm excited about this idea and I hope I really do hope it's widely adopted. And then just from a revenue perspective, this obviously for just in the context of baseball is a huge deal. They played the entire season, uh, the bridge season last year without any attending fans until the very end, the National League Championship Series in the World Series. And we had reports of uh, the league uh, losing several billion dollars last year, although those figures were never publicly released or audited. But there certainly was a significant loss. And all the estimates are is that Major League Baseball specifically gets at least 40% of its total revenue through gate-related sources. So being able to bring anybody back and bring them back in this kind of scale, there's a huge near-term financial component here on top of the all of the public health and psychological benefits of being being back in the ballpark just being able to sort of have that sort of additional bridge capital to sort of get to and through this year and into next year yeah and it's it's not just the tickets that are being sold or given away depending upon the situation it's all of the other revenues in the ballpark the the beer the food the parking uh, all the of the merchandising yep. So to include, uh, to have more people in those stands is great on all fronts. And also just in terms of the quality of the experience, and it's it makes it a lot more fun and people feel like they're back with sports again when you have a full ballpark or quasi-full ballpark. So I think we're, we're, we're on the right tr- track here and just hopefully can get this uh, this ramped up very soon. Absolutely. Well, as we uh, uh, close out here, another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, let's look ahead into uh, the upcoming week here and, and what's sort of particularly catching your eye looking ahead in the space. Well, another deal that just happened this week in a, in a flurry of deals, Eric, is that Fox Sports bought Outkick, the coverage, a right. uh, sports website, sports and lifestyle website and media property. I'm going to be very, very interested to see how that integration and that execution rolls out. Outkick is is one of those properties that uh, has a distinctive point of view. Uh, Some people love it. Some people don't like it. Seems to fit with the Fox uh, culture. And so we'll see how that uh, execution works and how it focuses again on betting, because I think that is a key part of of the Fox strategy overall. And this may be a a shot in the arm on, on that front. Yeah, and interesting in the sense that if you sort of compare the entire Fox company, Fox Sports and Fox News, where they are now and where they were some years ago, it's a narrower business now. And they've obviously shed the RSNs. They've shed some other things. And even in sports, they've they've lost some global soccer rights. They picked up some, some more in South America this week. But the business is, is more narrowly focused now than it was before. And so to sort of see them sort of continue in that particular lane, but also try to 
recalibrate the business in this new dynamic. It's interesting. They're, they're another, compared to a lot of the other networks, are a little bit of an odd duck in terms of how they're structured. But uh, it's very interesting to sort of see them look to be acquisitive and, and do more deals again. And, and they could do, really could do more in sports. And they have, a, they have a great platform. They have a great brand. They have not acquired that many companies. They've obviously acquired a lot of rights over the years. They have not acquired that many companies in sports. Uh, but now they may have more of a focus on that because, as you said, of the, of the narrower purview overall of the company. Sure. And, and from my standpoint, uh, I, I'm really sort of spending a lot of time looking at and focused on the New York Rangers and the National Hockey League lately. It's been a very turmoil uh, set of days for this team that they went to the Stanley Cup finals in 2014, have been rebuilding ever since. And just as we get to close out the uh, just in the next couple of days here, the 2021 regular season, the the Rangers aren't going to make the playoffs. But owner James Dolan abruptly and surprisingly fired team president John Davidson and their general manager, Jeff Gordon, and then promoted the associate general manager and former Rangers star Chris Jury to both roles. That's only one part of it. But then the Rangers are in the midst of a increasingly combative relationship with the National Hockey League. Uh, Dolan and NHL commissioner uh, Gary Bettman have sparred over the years on several other issues. But without sort of belaboring uh, the the back and forth too much here, there's a, a real dispute in terms of these sort of relative equity and some on-ice discipline that has been rendered in the last handful of days here. But what it's done is it's sort of brought back a lot of tension to the relationship between the Rangers and, and owner James Dolan and the league office. And even though we're sort of moving into the postseason now without the Rangers, I don't think we've heard the last of Dolan yet. And I, as we head towards the uh, start of the next season in the fall, how that relationship continues to evolve and change, it's going to be something I continue to bear watching. Yeah, there, there is likely some ongoing drama to, to be happening there. And, and as uh, as I may have mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I'm excited about how well the Knicks are doing. And it's right. funny, this Rangers kerfuffle kind of uh, knocks the Knicks off the front pages or, or whatever the case may be. But I, I do think there's some hope and excitement in the New York market now as the Knicks head into the playoffs. But there, but there's always something going on here and, and always some drama. And uh, in, at some point... Uh, We'll get through that and on to the next story, but right now it, it makes for some good reading. Well, in, in the midst of all of that, of all of this back and forth with the Rangers, we also got some financial results this week from their parent company, MSG Sports, and they took a, you know, revenues were down by about a third because of COVID-19 and, and you know, the attendance restrictions that they're still dealing in an indoor standpoint. So we got sort of a, a lens into sort of the near-term damage that they've suffered financially as a result of the pandemic. But getting back to what we were just talking about relative to the outdoor stadiums, if that can translate indoors here over the coming months, that's going to be a very different situation as well. Well, all of the the, the sports teams have been 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 hurt, and the media companies tied to them have been hurt. I, I think just though at a higher level, these major league clubs had the the wherewithal to sustain that. Whereas you've got minor league properties, you've got some other emerging properties that were not able to sustain right. that. So while I, while I do feel some sense of sympathy for some of the big league teams that had a tough year and there were certainly layoffs and there were furloughs and things like that, so that's never a good thing. But I'm, I'm happy that for the most part, these are such 
buoyant uh, organizations and properties that they're able to sustain it. And the long-term prospects are, are pretty good, I think. Yep. And, he, and even MSG Sports themselves said as much that not only are they looking forward to having full houses again in the coming months, uh, they get to take advantage of uh, mobile betting in New York, which we talked about a few weeks ago as well. And, uh, and NFTs. And so NFTs. There's always, there, there's always something new to make money on. Yep, absolutely. Well, that's going to close out another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly. For Chris Russo, I'm Eric Fisher. I thank you again for spending this time with us. And just as a quick disclaimer, this podcast was for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial or investment advice. That'll do it. And we'll see you again next week. Next week.